Welcome to Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast, where we are amplifying the Black adoption conversation with Black adoptee voices and Black families at the center. We're your hosts, Dr. Sam and Sandria, two Black adoptees adopted by Black families still trying to make sense of our adoption journeys. We have all been touched by adoption, whether we realize it or not. You just don't hear our stories until now. Every birth has a story. So So let's let's go go black black to the the beginning. beginning. Welcome black, y'all. It is Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Sam. And I am your other co-host, Sandria. (laughs) (laughs) The sing song has been giving me life and I appreciate it. How are you doing this evening, Sandria? I'm fantastic. I'm amazing. You know, it's always a pleasure when we get to speak to dope people every week. Like that's what we get to do. We get to speak to dope people, share dope stories. So I'm excited. I'm good. I completely agree. It is just a blessing. And I am so grateful whenever we have people who are willing to share their stories with us. And tonight is no difference. We have another fantastic guest, but we want to cue this up again by making sure that we have any new listeners that are coming to Black to the Beginning to, you know, take it literally back to the beginning in terms of the historical aspects of the Black adoption experience. And one of the things that it's important for us to note is that Black people have been adopting into their families forever. Since the beginning of time is what we have done. We have um, been there when children haven't been able to find loving homes, grandparents are taking folks in, aunties, uncles, play mamas, play daddies. We have been informally adopting forever, right? And one of the things that we want people to understand is that Black people also formally adopt. And they do so in a myriad of different ways. But one of the barriers that has been in the way of Black folks is our fear of systems, in particular, the foster care system. And so tonight, we really want to speak with our guests about this system that Black folks have feared for quite some time, getting understanding of how she has navigated that system herself and what that has been like for her throughout the thread of her life and that of her family. So with that, we want to welcome Zara Alabanza. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. So let's go ahead and get into it. We know that you were in the foster care system. Can you share with us what were the circumstances around that How did you find yourself as a young child in foster care? So my mother transitioned in 1991 and we were living in Hawaii where I grew up on the island of Oahu. And in her transitioning, she didn't have a will and verbally it stated where she wanted us to go. So me and one of my siblings ended up with a sister in Southern California. She had a family and because none of this was legal, When my father showed up in the picture out of nowhere, she felt obliged to allow him to take us from her care. And so he did what I, I actually say that he kidnapped us at the age that I was, which was 12 at the time, I found out I legally had a say in where I could live. And he didn't respect that. And so he kidnapped us from Southern California, took us to Northern California, and tried to take us to his mother's house and was unwilling to follow her rules. And she said, the kids can stay, but you gotta go. And he was like, nah, he took us with him. And we spent a number of nights homeless outside, I recall that, and eventually found ourselves um, in San Francisco with a friend of his. We had left all of our belongings at another friend's house and we found ourselves in a motel with his female friend who ended up being a sex worker and he left us there that night and never returned so I wake up to being with this woman who was very kind and nice to us but who didn't know what to do with three children so it was me and my two brothers at the time and took us to a payphone called the police 
And I remember this very vividly, the police coming to pick us up. And I remember the looks that we got in the police car of like, what are these children doing in this car? And they took us to a waiting center where children wait to get placed. So like emergency care. So yeah, he, he kidnapped us, abandoned us, and we ended up in foster care. My two younger brothers stay unified together. So they went into care together, which I'm super grateful for. And then I ended up in a separate home in San Francisco. So your two brothers end up being placed together. Is this yeah. what happened when you were at that uh, holding place? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Did they give you any insight on why you were being split in that manner? I, I don't recall, but I am a social worker. So I just imagine they couldn't find care for all three of us. And that because they were so close in age and the same sex, that it was just easier to place them together than it would to place all three of us. And I was older, so letting me go alone versus one of them going alone. That makes sense. So during this point in which you were in, in foster care, right? So your, your brothers are in one place, you're a place by yourself. Do you hear anything from your father? Because we're told that one of the goals of foster care is the reunification of the family. So I'm just curious. I didn't hear from him, but my grandmother did make an effort to get all of us. She got my brothers very early on. They didn't stay in care very long. I didn't want to go. I was furious. I didn't want anything to do with my dad's side of the family because of what he had did. And because prior to my mother's death, they hadn't been present. And so I didn't want anything to do with them and opted to stay in foster care. Hmm. That's interesting that you made that choice because at this point, you're 12, you're right. You completely have the choice to make those decisions, but due to the lack of the relationship prior to and placing what sounds like some blame on that side of the family for what happened, you just decided I'm gonna go this alone with strangers. Yeah, yep. And, but my foster care situation was a woman named Doris Brown and she had been a long-term foster parent or kept, that's, she kept foster kids. She was very loving. I had a really great experience in general there. And so I think based on the amount of time before they asked me where I wanted to go, I just had such a good experience that I felt that that was the best place for that time. How long did you stay with Doris? I was there for, I believe like a year, year and a half. I remember that because I was in the sixth grade. So I spent my entire sixth grade year with her. And that was the year, this is significant for me. It was the year that Rodney King was beat. And I remember having and participating in my pro first protest in middle school. So mm. it's a very memorable time for me. Mm. So you spend a year and a half with Doris and then what happens after that point? I don't know the details of how it happened, but I ended up with my grandmother. So over that time span, maybe I changed my mind or whatever the case was, but I decided, or maybe was forced, I don't recall, but went to go live with her and my two brothers. And possibly I had a lot of delinquent behavior, understandably so, so that could have led to why as well that I, that I ended up with her. And I can only imagine there was some happiness about being reunited with your brothers finally, but also some anger, more anger, if you were not fully on board with moving and leaving your foster mom's care. What were your thoughts and, and feelings during that time when you were placed with your grandmother? So these are really great questions. I'm like, huh, I don't know. I don't remember this. <laughs> nobody ever stops to think about, nobody asks the child at that time, well, how do you feel about this? It's like, no, this is what we're doing. So yeah, now you get to go back. I do. So there was definitely anger. And that year and a half at that time in my life had made me so different than my brothers. We were very, very close. The timing of it contributed to me evolving so much as I, matu I was maturing. And so by the time I got back to them and the time 
we hadn't spent together had changed so much that we weren't the same unit anymore. And I do remember showing up to my grandmother's and still not wanting to be there. So again, the delinquent behavior was real. I was cutting up and acting out in response to being somewhere I didn't want to be with people who I was angry with. And then never having had any therapy or anyone talk to me about my mother dying. Like nobody, nobody said anything about her. And so it was like all of this. And of course, this is as an adult, I know those traumatic experiences had me cutting up and people didn't know what to do or have any insight on how to like try to get some understanding as to who and how and why I was being the way I was. So thinking about the relationship between yourself and your brothers, one where it used to be close and now Big Sis is a little detached at this point. Do you feel that the, the feeling was mutual where it's like, mm, we've been away, we're good on her? Or were they like, what's going on, sis? Like, we don't have that closeness, what's going on? Were they making like efforts to connect? Well, they were so young and so... Okay, I'm sorry, actually, let me, that was the sixth grade. I went back to my sister's house, actually, before I went to my grandmother's. So there was a whole nother year that I was separated from them. When I got to them, I was in the eighth grade. So sixth grade, I was in foster care, pardon me. Seventh grade, I went back to live with the sister, delinquent there, all kinds of stuff. And then she was done with me. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> I'm over it. I fully understand this now as I'm in similar positions. And the option was get your stuff together or you need to leave. And I guess I decided not to get myself together and I went and lived with my grandmother. So those two, two, two and a half years is what created this divide in us. They were still in elementary school. And so I was just maturing and I couldn't probably be bothered with them. I recall them looking up to me and we did have a bond, but I pretty much was like, I'm the older sister living my life and I don't want to build that relationship with y'all. Probably part of me being resentful as well that they still had each other where I was kind of out in the world on my own. And when I hear you tell your story, there's so many things that were in the mix. And I feel like people put this umbrella on youth that have been in foster care and the narrative is that, well, they, they've been in foster care, so they are bad children because they were in foster care. But it's like, no, that's not why they are acting out, wilding out. Like, you have to look at what happened before they came into care. So you were grieving the loss of your mother. You, you are dealing with being kidnapped. You are dealing with not having autonomy over who you get to live with, what you get to do. Like there's all these different things that nobody takes the time to dig into. And there's just kind of a label like, oh, foster kids are bad. You yeah. know, this is just a, this child is wild acting out. How did your grandmother perceive you? Was that placed on you or... Did she see you as, you know, this is my, this is my grandbaby and she's been through some things. Yeah, definitely not the latter. I was a fast ass, you know, in these streets, she had very clear rules and boundaries. So keep your academics right and don't get pregnant. And I followed that, which gave me a lot of leeway, but she was not emotionally available. And I understand that now because she's of a generation who didn't have the tools and resources to communicate their own traumas, let alone tap into another generation that is experiencing trauma. So what she did was show up the best way she knew how, which was provide housing and love in those nurturing ways of you're safe, you got a roof over your head, you're getting the education. And it was satisfying until I realized that there was so much more I needed, which wasn't until I was an adult. So I did what she told me to do. I did it how she told me to do. I was very respectful and kept my stuff to the streets and worked really hard not to bring that stuff to the house. So she's since transitioned and we had a relationship that she became proud of me. She came to my college graduation, but I can't imagine what it was like for her to raise a second set of kids who had all the trauma that they had and how much 
that took away from her possibly living a much different life. I have so much empathy and gratitude for what she did and a lot of remorse for how I was behaving. But I do know that the behavior was because I had experienced so much as well and I wasn't getting the resources I needed. And I believe she tried to get me counseling and I was just pushing back against it because I was like, I don't want to tell nobody my business, you know? So she did. And in the end, no matter how I felt about how she raised me, I love who I am. And it couldn't have, I couldn't have evolved into who I am without who she was and how she was and what she provided. So I've reconciled in my heart what I didn't get from her and have a complete understanding of why she was the way she was. This generational trauma that Black families endure is just mind-blowing because you're going through all of this for someone who, for all intents and purposes, is not emotionally available herself, but yet you've lost a parent. And I wonder sometimes too, just thinking back to, again, what we've experienced as Black people, you're losing people continuously. And so it's almost as if just chuck it up and, and, and keep moving as if it wasn't a whole parent there at a particular point in time, especially for a young child. Is there ever a point in time where even if it was just loose, was there an acknowledgement? I know that you lost your mother. Can we talk about this? Do you want to talk about this? Was there ever a glimmer of that? Excuse me. My maternal side of the family also for a decade never checked in on me as they're grieving the loss of their own mother. And they, my sisters, there are other siblings from different fathers, but they all were raised with my mother. They were going through their own stuff with her loss, but to also not check in on the youngest siblings is extremely hurtful and still looms over my life. It feels like work that I don't even want to address, that I want to just be at peace with because they were doing the best they can. And I, I so understand that. But for me not to recall that somebody stepped in and just asked me, how does it, how are you feeling about this? Is to hear you ask that question is like, damn, nobody, nobody checked for me. And hence the core of my trauma is abandonment. My mother didn't actively leave me she died and there was anger and resentment towards her and then anger and resentment because as adults nobody checked for me and that's all a child wants is someone to check for them consistently enough to feel like they are loved and cared about in this very visible way not the roof over your head not the food and clothes because that's that's a given even though I do know that as a way we show love a child wants to have someone check for them I wanted someone to check for me and it, it wasn't done, you know, so. My heart just completely goes out to you. Thank you for just even expressing that so eloquently and honest. And something that I even thought about, it's like, you lost your mom, nobody checked for you, but you also lost, and, and I don't know how long you were there, but you mentioned, you, know, you grew up in Hawaii, like, can you mind just a second? Like, you know, I, I lost Hawaii as well. Like, beautiful nature and beaches and air and freedom. And my goodness. And now I'm bouncing, you know, from, from place to place. And I, and I think there is something to be said about that. You grew up a particular way. And so it was a dramatic shift even on, on that front. So not only losing a parent, but also losing this sense of place um, and identity. And so I'm curious, and I'm sure we'll, we'll probably get into this later, but does that even play into who you are as a person, kind of your wonderless desire and, and love of travel and experiences and, and even are those things, things that you have done to help kind of heal in some way 
when you were expressing all of that, what I thought about was how I, I learned later, I was about 27 living in Chicago when it dawned on me because of who I was relationshiping with, how much of an immigrant experience I had, how when I got to the mainland, I talked funny, how I had never been around so many black people and how I was welcomed by them, but also made so much fun of because I was so different. I was othered a great deal. I smelled funny because we cooked different food. I talked funny. I looked funny to them as well. And again, I know how we jones on each other. So it was very endearing, but I'm very clear how othered I was when I got to the, to the stateside. And yes, I do. I haven't thought greatly about how growing up in Hawaii contributed to my wanderlust, but I do see how it contributes to the simplicity that brings me joy. I'm very much an island girl, which is very translatable to a country girl. I don't need a lot. Real simple pleasure. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to circle back to that for sure. We're also not addressing the fact that you lost a father. Let's talk about that. He was abusive to my mother. I recall that we had like an auntie move in, not a blood auntie, but an auntie move in to kind of interrupt that cycle and I he left when we were when I was seven and I didn't see him again till I was 12 after my mother died and then after he abandoned us there was no activity either by the time I got to college I was very aware of the healing I thought I had did around him and one day he somehow got my number called me out of nowhere and I realized I was mad at him I was like oh you gonna just call me and act like it ain't been years and a bunch of shit we just gonna chit chat and um, I believe I told him something along those lines and was like, I thought I had got past and through who and how you were to me, but I'm not. And I had to get off the phone with him because of that. Since then, my brothers have an ongoing relationship with him because they stayed in California and he's in California. I just kind of opted out and resolved in myself that we're not going to have a relationship because it would require me to do all the work. And I didn't want to do the work you you need to acknowledge within yourself that he had work to do and so it wasn't until I got my boys he got my number again this maybe three four years ago and he called and I was like oh and he asked to speak to them so didn't have a conversation with me for real he asked about my brothers maybe and then he was like oh let me speak to my grandkids and I remember handing the phone to my eldest and my eldest being like Getting on the phone, I guess my dad was like, oh, I'm your grandpa. And my eldest was like, oh, I got a grandpa? And I was like, holy shit. I never thought about it because he was so not present in my life. I speak about grandmothers and great-grandmothers, but never thought to mention this grandfather because he's just not a part of my life. And it saddened me, but I was grateful that it brought that to my awareness. There's, there's still no relationship, but that they at least know they have one. And that when appropriate, I can share stories with them, but I also just don't have a lot. And in raising them, what did reconcile my relationship with him in my heart is because I have my own mental health issues and I am doing the best that I can with all the tools I have to raise upstanding children and realize he's a Vietnam vet, that I was just a part of his life. I was just a part of a whole last life he has. And in the United States, we attach parents to their children as if they are the only thing you should live for. And when I think of other countries, it's like parents leave all the time to send back resources to their families and they're not condemned. But what it was is just like, I don't know what he was experiencing in his own life that didn't allow him to show up. But I have so much compassion for that at this point because there's days I can't show up. And so I'm just like, it was probably best he wasn't present. He was an addict, Vietnam veteran. You know, you had already abandoned us. It's probably just best you weren't here because who would I've grown into being if you were present, you know? So I absolutely reconciled that in my heart, but it wasn't until I was taking care of my own children that I, I got a better understanding of being a full-ass person that may not be able to show up the way society expects us to show up, but we do the best we can. He probably absolutely could have did better. This is not like let him off the, the, the hook for not being present, but it is me having a lot of compassion because people are whole and have their own lived experience that 
I'm just grateful I'm a part of because it's what brought me here. I'm listening to you. I'm thinking about the parallel between children growing up in foster care and then those who are adopted um, as well and thinking about how we set boundaries in a way to protect ourselves mm. and how others might listen in on that and be like, well, wait, what do you mean you're just not going to deal with your biological father, right? For adoptees, what do you mean you're not going to deal with people who have a certain bloodline to you? When you're experiencing trauma on top of trauma, you have to create space in order to be able to deal with those things that are hurting you. And sometimes it's people. And I just really appreciate what you're saying too, is that regardless of whatever it is that he was going through and the fact that he couldn't show up that you still had compassion for him. But that doesn't mean that I'm still not gonna say, uh-uh, you, you can't come over here, right? Like you need to step to the side, all the compassion, empathy in the world, I can't. I can't do that because I have to be in a place of, of healing for myself. So I appreciate you, you know, bringing that to light. It's interesting because it, it, you know, when I found the words for it, 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 it clicked and made sense and compassion being one of those and him having his, whole, his own struggles that I don't know, but he's dying of cancer now. And I get a phone call from another absent relative that thought I needed to know. And I'm like, thank you. And he's like, you need to call your dad. And I'm like, okay. And I feel bad that I don't want to. And I feel bad that he's, you know, has cancer. And so I'm all, I'm now I'm just like, well, what do you do? Do I miss out on learning about myself through learning about him? But it's asking me to be just a bigger person than I actually think I am. As I'm saying this today, what I'm hearing myself say is actually do take the risk. So this is really helpful. Thank y'all that I probably will take the risk and, and reach out because we live once and I should gather and get and have as much experience as I can because I can rather than be in regret because I didn't. But initially I just toggled with, damn, it hurts that this human is dying. Damn, I have to do more work and I'm deciding not to right now, but my mind has changed as of today. I will reach out and take that risk. <laughs> And I would say that is probably a good way to go. When my father was in the hospital, I think this was like 2006, 2007, my mom called and told me, she was like, you know, your dad, he's in the hospital. And I was like, okay, you know, and I kind of sat on it for a few days. And I think I was waiting for a personal invitation from him because we weren't super close. We were pretty much estranged and I didn't go. Like I just kept putting it off, kept putting it off. My mom went and they definitely didn't have a close relationship. So I'm like, well, if she's going, <laughs> you know, but I still didn't go. And then one Sunday morning I woke up like bright and early and it was just on my heart to go. And I was running through my mind, like, okay, I'm going to get up, hop in the shower, put this on, I'm going to run by the hospital, do that. And just as quick as I was going through my next steps, my phone rang and it was my mom. Mm. And she never called me early in the morning. And so I was like, okay, this cannot be good. And picked up the phone and she told me that he had passed. And I spent a lot of time kind of conflicted about it. Like, oh, you know, was I being prideful? Like, why couldn't I just go? and see him and I think in some ways for me it still kind of feels like a missed opportunity I don't know what that conversation would have been like I don't know if he would have said some endearing thing or you know even if he was in position to speak like I, I don't know but I feel like I do wish I had I guess taken that risk and just you know at least laid eyes on yeah. him if, if nothing else Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think you're right. Wow. <laughs> Look, we get deep over here. So <laughs> you know, I just like, <laughs> because we don't want to live in regret, right? It's I feel right. like a like a tug of war. You don't want to be in regret. You don't want to. And I was being petty. I think I was like 26 or 27 at the time. So I was just like, 
I'm not going, to, I'm waiting for him to call me. But is it petty though? Because part of it is like, again, like the protection of space. Part of it is like, I can forgive you, but I didn't fucking forget, right? You know, so it's like one of those things where, again, it's a tug of war and you make a decision for whatever you felt was best at the time. And then something happens and you can either regret it, not regret it, be at peace with it, feel like, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, hmm. that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But if you feel like you want to move forward with it, then, hey, that, that's part it's of your healing. journey. Yeah, and it's healing season. So I'm leaning into all the things right now. So the timing of this happening and coming to that realization and it being affirmed by y'all is like, go on and do it. And, I, and I'm really clear, I live once. Hmm. why miss out on anything that can help me be greater than I am or whatever the case, whatever the outcome is, you know, it's worth the risk. So, yeah. Yes, look, you gotta <laughs> speak that. Yeah. So something pivotal happened to you at 29 years of age. What happened? I somehow found out that my youngest brother's children were in foster care. And I remember, I don't know if it was a phone call and he called me from jail maybe, <laughs> but I got this information and I go to work. I was working at ICA at the time. Mm. And I remember going to my colleague friends and being teary and being like, oh, I think I have to take in my brother's children and feeling conflicted because I'm living my best Chicago life. This was not... <laughs> in the cards. I couldn't have seen it happening. I was living the best life I had ever had. And just was like, but who am I not to because I'm able to? It wasn't necessarily um, a joyful like, oh my God, I've been wanting to take care of kids my whole life and da, 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 da. It was more like what I call, it was like a forced obligation, right? Like how do you stop the cycle? How could I live with myself if I didn't do it because I am able to do it? And what does me taking them in do for their narrative? And so it was a long process. That was December when I found out. I didn't get them till September, the fall of 2010. And I did a lot of things in between calling myself preparing for them. They didn't work. You can never be prepared. And it's only in hindsight with counseling in the last 10 years, one of my therapists was like, wait a minute. So you took two kids in at two different ages at the same time? And then attempted to raise them aligned with some justice-oriented values by yourself. And I remember when she just put in kind of context what I was doing or had done, I just started crying because again, I needed to be seen. I needed it to not be minimized of like, that's what we do. I needed to be seen so fully of not the sacrifice, but how big of the load that I had taken on with all these things in my mind to, to right generational wrongs and just show up in a way that I was at the time financially able to and had the, the mental capacity to. So yeah, it's the most beautiful and most challenging life experience I've ever had is to raise my boys. You talked about trying to prepare and, and quickly learning that there's no way to really prepare for a situation like that. In hindsight, knowing what you know now, how would you advise someone, I don't know if prepare is the right word, but to wrap their mind around caring for multiple children as a single parent? So I think it's a couple of things, right? So the system failed me. The foster care system failed me. The kind of checking they did to make sure I was adequate was like, do you have a job and do you have a house? And that's not adequate. I absolutely needed to be in therapy consistently prior to getting them and afterwards. And so that is my number one thing is make sure your own life is in proper health before you take on that task. Deal with your shit. If you thought you deal with it, go deal with it some more because it's going to bring up absolutely everything. And you need to know what can come up. And then even if you can, how are you going to deal with that when it comes up? Because it's going to come up. And then it's, if I had more energy, I would have addressed the foster care system. Because I was a relative, it was lackluster. 
because I could prove that I had a job. I bought my condo and that was part of me being prepared, but they just were happy that they didn't have to put them in the, or keep up with what it would take to have two black children in foster care in a white family. All the things that come with that. And so it was easier for them to allow me to have them, but there was so much more work that should have been done for me to be prepared in the best ways or be more ready than I actually was. I think about my anger. I just think about a lot of things that would have just been addressed in therapy and then more tools given to me because I had a really idealistic outlook and nobody told me that it wouldn't be great, (laughs) that it was going to be really hard and pull on your whole spirit to show up better than it actually was. After moving to Atlanta, two years after getting them, I've had bouts of deep, deep depression because I've never had the space to one tell the story, but yet get the kind of help that's necessary for all the things that I experienced that led me to even make that decision. It was my own life's experiences that said that was the right decision, but not having truly dealt with any of my life experiences made it extremely hard to show up in the role that I was being asked to show up in as a parent. Was there anyone in your like close friend circle who was in or had been through a similar situation as you? Like, did you have any type of support where you could kind of bounce this off of like another person who has taken on family members who, who can relate to having to, to give up their, their best, you know, single black girl in the street's <laughs> life, you know? Like, well, did you have anybody? Not that, not anybody who had had a similar experience, but what I did have was two friends who, for the first two years, lived in the household and helped me raise them. So these women, we call it the Wonderland years, because we were happy, it was a good time, because it was three of us, and, <laughs> but also, I didn't know how to ask for what I needed, but however they showed up made the load a lot easier. And it was at a point in time where I hadn't experienced depression around it. So we had a good time. I was a very active, like, let's go to this and let's go see that and let's go do this. But there were also two other people helping me. So there was support in the household that made that point in time easier, where when I moved to Atlanta, it didn't exist for a very long time. And then it became a different configuration. I have community. But the in-the-house component at these pivotal times didn't, did not exist in the same way. So I'm super grateful for those two women. They are my sisters, my loves, my, my first baby mamas. But again, we, they were doing the best they can. I was, it could have been so much better, but it was also really beautiful, really beautiful time. When I look back at that, that time via pictures, I was like, oh, I was happy. I was doing it. It was the choice to leave it all behind and start over in a city where I knew one person. <laughs> And they weren't the same kind of support. I was like, who, who does that? My silly ass does. And it just made it harder for me. It made it so much harder. Was having the boys part of your move to Atlanta? Just thinking about, you know, is Chicago the right place to raise black boy children? Let, let's go to Atlanta. So, you know, I lived on 71st and Craigier. And Chicago is amazing. It was amazing for me as a single person, but at that time, and I don't know that it's changed much, the, the likelihood that one could be harmed physically just was too high. And I hate the snow. So it was a year that we had that first really bad blizzard in 2010. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm done. I grew up in Hawaii. And it reminded me that they could have a similar experience, that they would have a yard and warm sun more, more days out the year, and we could be surrounded by Black people. And so I remember having a going away party called Remigrating Back Down South. And that's what drew me to Atlanta was to give them something similar to what I lived in in Hawaii. And it's so different, but it's also just very much the same in a lot of ways, the slowness, the pace, what they get access to as far as space and greenery, and then all the diversity of Blackness is I couldn't have dreamed it up better but so yeah leaving Chicago was all about them but about me also having the time to be the kind of parent I wanted to be I worked far too much I was working 50 hours a week before them and didn't stop when I got them and so I had burnt out at work and was like I need to slow down and it would allow me to show up for them 
I didn't turn into like a cookie baking parent. I thought I would, but (laughs) you know, that's not who I am. But it was like, but you're going to see me grow food. You're going to see me do yoga. You're going to see me ride this bike and try to heal myself with the tools that I have access to so that I can be better for you. And that's, that's, that's what moving to Atlanta was about to save myself, but to make sure that they had something similar to a life for Black boy joy to shine without so much fear as a parent and risk as them being in Chicago. And I love Chicago, but them some hard knock streets for Black boys. For real, for real. Look, we, Look, we know. <laughs> <laughs> you just touched on so many things as it relates to the, the kinship piece with foster care and even with adoption too, that because we've been doing it so long, like informally, it's like taking me back in the day where (laughs) I took your kid. That doesn't mean that I wanted to or that I was prepared to. And I'm hearing something similar as well. It's almost like we, we give this badge if you do do it. And then we're looking at you sideways if you don't and then guilting you into that space or what have you, but you've made quite a bit of progress, it sounds like, with just all different transitions. Have you considered a full-on adoption of your nephews? I I thought about adoption and that was on the table, but it would require their mother's rights were terminated. And I'm totally, I, I come from the reproductive justice field, so I was totally against it because my youngest was still, was under one. And I was like, what if he was breastfeeding? And their reasoning was, was not because of drug use or anything that traumatic, traumatic in that way that you would take a newborn away from their mother. It was basically neglect. Like she didn't come home for a couple of days and left them with a caretaker that couldn't be responsible for them. Right. And I just didn't think that was grounds for terminating parental rights. But then she also didn't go through the effort to reunify. So I get that. My brother was incarcerated. I refused to terminate his rights. My politics was, we're not going to use this system against ourselves. You may never get them back, but in terminating rights, it also means he's not supposed to have access to him. And I would break that law if I did adopt him, but I just didn't want, want to uphold a system that wasn't for, that doesn't tend to be for Black folks, that criminalizes us even in our best efforts. And so I chose not to adopt. And that also gave way for them to, if at any point, they wanted to go live with him. It also allowed it to a particular extent. And we've actually had to use that as an option recently. So yeah, that's why it just was against my politics. We're not terminating rights. But it leaves them in my life. Like I'm doing annual and six months reports. And I'm like, after 12 years, y'all can leave me the hell alone. Right. <laughs> y'all, and, and I'm states away. Y'all ain't got like y'all don't need to be on me like that. So I think that the system is flawed and like they think they're keeping good tabs and I'm like, you're not. There's no actual check-in that would demonstrate that they are being actively as the state involved in the children's well-being. Because I could flat out be lying about everything I report on and they would not know. I am not lying, but I just, my, my lens is like, this is the system is, this is how kids fall in the cracks y'all actually are not monitoring the way you ought to if you're going to decide to monitor and then monitoring should be cut off at a particular extent of like wellness being demonstrated over multiple years in my opinion this is so much information here and knowledge that most people do not have it is beneficial because it is a field that you work in you know Mm -hmm. as a social worker but then also coupling that with the fact that you are a foster parent but how many people are going through this and don't know half of what you know? So I think it's just like super empowering for you to even have that consideration of your brother. Like, I'm not going to make this particular move because I know how this system works. I'm being super intentional about my decisions. And I think that's also too how a lot of Black folk lose their children because they just don't have the knowledge and they don't know the chess pieces to move within the system, which is why we're constantly side-eyeing it. But then you also, again, again from a adoptee standpoint, you're leaving a whole bunch of Black babies on the table. That could really be a part of someone else's home, but we don't want to 
dabble, if you will, into systems that have been historically against us and entangled in red tape as well. So thank you for the knowledge dropping. Yes. So you got these two black boys. <laughs> boys, I have a son myself and it is something about a little black boy. <laughs> Talk to us about this, this joy and this freedom mm -hmm. that you want them to experience in their lives. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this sounds horrible, but I'm always like, I'm trying to raise boys that don't end, end up being fuck boys. And yeah. um, <laughs> that's, that's not horrible at all. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we gotta look out for the next generation. And so there's this mix of like old school raising with more modern ways of raising, with some island raising, and with some who the hell does that. And I'm very clear, I don't know what I'm doing, but travel's important to me. So y'all can get your passports. We're gonna use them as much as we can. You all are going to have very old ways and say things like pardon me and I'm gonna make sure you know how to snap peas on a porch and then you also gonna get this skateboard and this surfboard and this bicycle because those are my interests and also tell me what you want let me let me evaluate and analyze what shows up in your own life like from your natural instincts so that we can highlight those things as much as possible and make sure you get to choose your own way let's tap into your emotions okay so I see that you are frustrated we don't do anything while we frustrated Though I'm not always the best example of that, these are the words that are coming out of my mouth. How do you communicate effectively and how do you have all the emotions you need in a safe way? So I think that my own upbringing, my education and having dated black men, I'm queer, but also having had intimate relationships with black men who have loved me very well and harmed me very well. I just have a breadth of ways and ideas about what I can pour into them to just be their most authentic self. And despite how I have shown up in the ways that are harmful and don't always feel good to any of us, they have so much joy. And it's not about, I don't wanna say that they're resilient. They are, but I've been also just so intentional about like living my life out of the box and unconstructed by what society says I should look like and act like and be like as a black, queer, formally educated person in this body, that I, that is also the best example I can get them to live your full life. Don't let no one stop you. But also you have to know my eldest is 6'6". Six, six. It's baby face, but you're 6'6". Six, six. I had this, he used to um, jog around the block as exercise in the morning before school. And then I had to stop it because a black boy running in this neighborhood that looks as big as you, if they don't see your face, they don't know you a child they're going to treat you differently. So I still have to give you all the warnings and somehow not rip your spirit out of you while I'm raising you for the reality of this world and the possibilities of this world. And that combination is hard as hell. I don't know who they're going to be when they grow up, but I do know I have given my all. And it, it shows up though. These boys are loved by so many people. <laughs> Constant. Like they can't go anywhere in a five mile radius and someone not hit me up. Oh, I've seen the boys. I've seen them on their bikes or on their way to school or that we was at a soccer game. So they're very just enveloped and covered in love in our community, our physical community. And then this very intentional community that I developed because I knew I didn't have it all. It wasn't about having a male figure in their life. It was about having as many people intimately connected with them so that they can just get as much as they can. Because having one male figure is not and never has prepared anybody for the world. I'm not a soft person. I have an armor. I have brought the most soft cookie bacon. I'm a tend to be tended to you people in their life because I can't, my own healing is a part about getting back to that softness. So I was just very aware of what I couldn't and what I could and that I didn't know. And it's a good enough combination of things that when I look at them, and when other people look at them, there's joy, but not without hurt, not without their own, like a friend of mine texted me the other day and was like, I pray for them, for whatever goes through their minds when they lay down to sleep and what they run in their heads that you will never know that they can find peace in whatever they think about, about how they got here, what has been left behind. And it was just the most beautiful prayer because I can't be the only one praying that they have ease over them. You know what I mean? And I was just grateful for that friend's 
to have that prayer for them because it's also sometimes I don't have the capacity to think about that because I'm just trying to make it with, with what I'm carrying. But they have so much joy. The, the Instagram pictures ain't a front. I can post some ones that like tell a different story as well. But that joy is, is real. It's so real. And, and I check in with them. I'm like, are y'all really happy? <laughs> can I offer something else that like helps you sustain the joy that you have? And they're happy spirited people. So you definitely cultivated uh, this joy, not only for them, but for yourself. I want to touch on just a little bit, just to give people an idea of kinship care or really just parenting in general, but specific to your situation. Can you talk a little bit about those early years and you know, what that was like, particularly when they, when you first got the boys, like, what did they call you? Was there a conversation Mm -hmm. about, you know, how are we, you know, it's like this dance, how are we going to be together? Because we are now in this together. I believe I experienced postpartum. I didn't know it was possible because I didn't birth them, but I'm pretty sure I experienced postpartum depression. And that was something I'd never heard of from people who didn't birth the children. So that was an exploration. I automatically went into them calling me mom and I would do it differently now because there's a uniqueness to our configuration that deserves to be seen automatically rather than people just assuming that we are a traditional nuclear unit because it also normalizes kinship care. It normalizes adoption because also there was a period in time when one of the kids did the I hate you, you're not my real mom situation because part of because of when you share at school a lot of kids don't have compassion they want to have inquiry that then makes you feel bad about your situation because it's not like anybody else's came to me from a white family so there were some identity things and I said of course my proud to be black self would be challenged with a child who said they wanted to be white we worked through that real easy again I'm living with two women I get a kiss on my cheek and there was already a frown up I'm like you're four who the hell told you that women can't kiss each other. And this is non-sexual. It's a affectionate, loving kiss amongst platonic friends. And it was already this disdain for it. So I'm already being challenged with the way the world says we're supposed to be and having to then teach and learn all the other ways or so many other ways of how we get to be in the world. But then there's also like, I get to take you to all of these places, expose you to all of these foods and these people and culture And Chicago was such a great place in the early years because it's such a diverse city that we're at the Puerto Rican Day Festival, we're at Navy Pier, it's Dia de Muertos, you know, there's DuSable Museum. So the cultural exposure, the musical exposure, the sports teams, like we did it all, you know, and then they're around a lot of adults, which matured them in a way. So there was always lots of people around. There was, you know, African-centered schools is what they did when we were in Chicago. Now they're in public schools, but they just were exposed intentionally to as much as I possibly could, which set a real good foundation. Because when we got to Atlanta, a lot of things just became harder. And I didn't have the same capacity or energy to do as much as I did when I was in Chicago. So that, those two years were just really, really clutch to setting a foundation for them. You've been talking about your healing and you've talked about the fact that you've also gone to therapy. If you could share with us how that has been impactful in your life and what other ways that you have been being intentional about your healing so that you can show up as the best person for yourself, but then as the best parent for your children. So what has come to me literally in the last week and a half is that the therapy I've done is really to address the very surface level day-to-day stressors and not the core, the depths. I've literally been an alert ostrich with my head in the sand, just get through, get through, get to the next, the next, the next, the next. And then I created space, pull my head up and I'm like, I ain't really dealt with shit. I've been just dealing with the day-to-day thing. So I have a therapy session tomorrow where I get to, and this is just a great precursor to getting to the core issues of why I show up the way I show up. So I'm super grateful, again, to have this conversation right before this day that I get to finally address more of the core issues that contribute to the very presenting issues. 
And I think we get, because black folks haven't traditionally gone to therapy, we get caught up in therapy so much, but this whole time I've been doing healing work. Similar to Sandria, I've went to 10 day Vipassana retreat where you, you, <laughs> you shut down all the senses and you present to meditate for 12 to 16 hours a day with no distractions. I travel a great deal. I practice yoga. I have very great morning rituals. I don't know who I would be without them. And I also know that they're not enough. I need more. So this is where therapy, I think is going to be really beneficial and I'm excited about it. But yeah, I'm a very active person. I'm a, I'm a self-starter. So I've started the things that I didn't, I haven't seen in the world, which has been part of just living my best life, which is part of healing, right? Let me create the life I want for myself because I also deserve, despite what I've experienced, to live well. So yeah, I think for me, like I said, the therapy was just addressing the very surface level day-to-day -day stressors. And now I'm excited, like literally excited to get to it. Like, I'm like, who am I going to become? Because I can possibly wake up without despair because that's not normal. And I am looking forward to what this next 10 years is like, because the last 12 years, again, I was just keeping us alive and parenting or trying to parent in this very ideal way that no one was telling me to, but I had all these ideas about how I was going to be a parent and it should just not true, right? Like you can only do so much. And I got my ass handed back to me and I've done things and been ways that I'm not proud of, but grateful for the things that I did do well and have done well. Well, we thank you for sharing your story with us this evening, for sure. And the last question, you touched on this um, a little bit at the beginning, but why is it so important to tell your story? What do you want people to take away from what you have shared here with us this evening? The importance of telling a story is one selfishly for yourself, right? It is your story, your narrative is part of what contributes to who you are. And when you tell it, you don't know what's going to come up for you. So then you have an opportunity to adjust that narrative by doing something different as you move forward. And then it's like, which is why I love music and writing, because hearing someone else's story and having it resonate with you will just take away the aloneness we often feel, particularly about topics that we don't get the space to talk about that are not normalized. And this is just one of those topics that we should be screaming from the top of the lungs that there's this other configuration and that a lot of times they come through hardship, but that families can look so many different ways and you deserve to know that there's a configuration that works for you. We just have to constantly share more from our Black lens about this experience because of the healing and because what other folks can walk away from. And I think from my story, what I, I hope people can get anything from it, give grace and always have compassion, like real talk. We all figuring it out with what we have. Be gentle with yourself through whatever process you're going through. If you're an adoptee, if you're the adopting person, if you're the foster care parent or the foster care child, give yourself grace to let the puzzle pieces come together. But it's a beautiful, it can be a beautiful journey. Ain't no destination. We just keep journeying. And like I said, this experience and just sharing what I have shared has just swelled my heart up with so much gratitude for the opportunity. And I, you all possibly didn't know what people would walk away from having this experience with y'all, but it absolutely becomes part of a memoir that perhaps one day I will, I will write and just a moment that is, I'm super grateful for. So I hope that someone listening to me just can be filled with something worthwhile. Well, you've dropped several mics this evening. I don't even want to, you know, get too much behind that. So what I will do is, is do some, some quoting, um, <laughs> which is you have told us to live outside the box, to really focus in on realities and possibilities and be intentional about living well. And one of the pathways to get there, as you just so eloquently stated, is grace and compassion for ourselves for others and continue to share our stories so that we can heal in this world and have that black person magic, right? Like just to live yeah. as black people. So 
Thank you so much. We appreciate Thank you. you. We appreciate you. You Thank cool. You. And your story is beautiful and dope. And yeah, we're just honored. We're honored. It's mutual. Thank you all for this offering to all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast with Dr. Sam and Sandria. If you want more Black to the Beginning, follow at Black to the Beginning and hashtag Black and Adopted on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you would like to share your Black adoption experience, check out our Instagram at Black to the Beginning and click the link in our bio. Remember, the Black adoption conversation is the Black family conversation. These discussions can be difficult, but necessary for generational healing. Let's keep the conversation going for the culture. <laughs>